0: You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So these disciples, we find them on a seven-mile walk, all right? It's a little bit further than if you were going to head out, Taylor, down New Cut to the Schneider. That's like 5.6 miles, okay? So they're going on a journey a little bit farther. It's a decent hike if you're on foot, uh, but it's not crazy, not outlandish. We can likely assume that these two men are, are now on their journey home, trying to process what what has just happened. What did they just experience? We see that in verse 14. It says, together they were discussing. That word is like they were tossing back and forth. They were discussing everything that had taken place. So just earlier in in Luke 24, verse 11, right right before we get to our text today, it, it tells us what has happened to them. Right, a handful of, of the female followers of Christ, they had gone out to see an empty tomb. They, re, they reported it to the disciples, and, and the disciples in verse uh, in 2411, it says they thought it was nonsense, and they didn't believe it. So Peter, the, the kind of leader the, of the church at this point, he went out to check it out. He saw the scene, an open tomb, no body, folded linens. Peter just went home, though, scratching his head. He didn't know what to make of it. He didn't know what was going on. That's the same place that we find these disciples, trying to figure out what has just happened. Verse 15, it says, And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself, emphasis, right? He says Jesus himself, the the real Jesus, (laughs) came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him so they were wrestling together with what they experienced as as they kind of lumbered home so shoulders slumped over and then jesus shows up but they were prevented from seeing him now we, we don't know why exactly right uh but they can't tell who it is there is a piece of it, you know, that maybe there's a little bit of pragmatism, right? Like different contexts, you know, not expecting to see him. You know, if you saw me at the gym in a tank top, unkempt hair and, and contacts in, I could probably sneak by you, right? So maybe it's pragmatic, but really probably more likely is that it's divine, right? We, we, we see that Jesus is not recognized by them. So for some reason, God is working maybe behind the scenes in a divine way to prevent the revelation of Christ at this exact moment. Not just haphazardly, not because he's like, um, I don't know, some puppet master behind the scenes, but with a specific purpose. But either way, they don't recognize who Jesus is. So we pick up in verse 17. Then he, Jesus, asked them, what's this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in these days? So we see right here in verse 18, right, the, the, the name of one of our, our sojourners, our journeyers, revealed, Cleopas. And Cleopas and his unnamed pal, when Jesus asked this question, they, they literally just stopped in their tracks. Like, this random stranger rolls up, he asks them what's going on, what they're arguing about, what are they talking about, and, and they're, they're halted. Like, how, how could you not know? I like guess all anyone's been talking about the last three days, right? It was on Twitter, or if people tweet anymore, TikTok, I don't know. The Jerusalem Times, right? It was everywhere, everyone was talking about it. How do you not know what happened? And then we find them discouraged, right? Can you can you imagine like the, the feeling that they may be going through? It's like one of the most cataclysmic events in their lives of the last three years happened, and then this guy shows up and he's like, "What are you what are y'all talking about?" Right? Imagine the questions that they're thinking like, "Were we wrong? Like, was was what we said was a big deal? It really, wasn't that big of a deal?" Like, this dude doesn't know what's going on. They're discouraged the absolute biggest thing that they've experienced in probably the last three years, and this random stranger has no idea about it. Now, as we continue along, as we look at verse 19 and and see kind of what's going on behind the scenes, follow along their conversation, I I want us to begin to unpack some things that, that seem to be getting in the way of the disciples seeing the resurrected Jesus, Now again, of course, there's there's certainly some divine intervention going on, but there also is is some human emotions and human experience happening that we see in this text. So what are are these blinders, if you will, to the resurrection that they're going through, that they're experiencing? The first thing that we see the, the disciples being blinded by is their disappointment. Verse 19 through 24 Jesus says, what, what things, right? What are you talking about? So they said to him, the, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech or word and deed before God and all the people and, and how our chief priests and, and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were, we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Now notice the, the language here, the, the disciples, they, they say, we were, we were hoping that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were hoping, wishing, dreaming <laughs> that the one who was about to redeem Israel, that he was the one that was about to redeem Israel. But we know based on, on other encounters with, with Jesus that the disciples had earlier and then even earlier in our text, they, they thought Jesus was going to do something different, they, they had certain expectations of what it meant to redeem Israel. And we all know, right, expectations are a powerful thing. If you have high expectations of something and it's just kind of average, right, then you're disappointed. On the flip side, if you are not expecting anything great and it's average, it's like, wow, that was amazing, right? quintessential example is like Mount Rushmore, right? It's like, there's... Experiences all over the map. I thought it was awesome because I was like going in, you know, expecting it to be these tiny figurine heads, right? Other people are like, do not waste your time, right? Stay out of South Dakota or wherever it is. North Dakota, I don't know. Expectations are powerful, they, they, they do something to us. See, the disciples and many of Jesus' followers, they they had the expectation that when Jesus said he was going to redeem Israel, that he was going to bring this political revolution about, that that he would immediately overthrow the Roman rule and restore Israel to its former earthly glory. So because they they had the expectation that that Jesus was going to be this triumphant uh, military leader, his death just did not fit in the picture they had no space for it. They didn't have a category. They didn't have a bucket to put crucifixion in. It didn't belong. That's what they were expecting. That's why even when the female disciples report that Jesus's body is missing, they they just don't even have resurrection on their radars. Because they're not expecting resurrection, they cannot see the risen Christ before their very eyes. Do you hear that? Expectations, friend, they have a way of blinding us to the goodness of God. Expectations have a way of, of blinding us to seeing who, truly, who Jesus truly is right in front of us. To seeing the truth of who he is. To seeing his beauty. To seeing the goodness that he has for us. Another blinder that, that we see uh, to experiencing the risen Christ is unbelief. Look at verse 25 with me. Jesus said to them, to Cleopas and the other disciple, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. A clear hindrance to to seeing and experiencing the resurrection is unbelief. Jesus says to these guys, you are slow to believe, meaning like you're, you're lagging along behind everyone else. You haven't gotten there yet, In spite of their having like, complete immersion in the Hebrew Scriptures, they, they don't believe it yet. This is an important to see. Like these, these men, they have all the right resources, right? They have the Hebrew Bible, the Scriptures. They have some of the right facts. They, they know he was supposed to redeem Israel, the Messiah was. They also know that there was not a body in the tomb anymore. Those are really important facts. Yet, they don't believe. They're slow to believe, as Jesus says. You know, as we looked at uh, the story of James last week, the the, um, the looked at the brother James, the brother of Jesus. Excuse me. One of the major things that I noticed as we study the text is that everything in the Christian faith hinges on the question: like, what do you do with this resurrection? <laughs> what do you do about it? Right? James saw Jesus' character like up front, up close, and personal, living in his household for twenty plus years. He saw the amazing things Jesus did. He heard his great teaching. He even, if he didn't see, he knew about the crucifixion. He has all those facts there. (gasps) Those didn't change him. Do you see that? What changed him was, as it said in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that he, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to James. The, The radical transformation that happened to James, the brother of our Lord, was experiencing the resurrected Christ. And that's the same thing that we see with these men. They were disciples, so they saw Jesus' character. They heard his teaching. They saw the miracles up front. They saw or at least knew about the crucifixion. Yet at this point, Jesus says they are slow to believe. They are in unbelief. So right now, their, their unbelief and the resurrection, it, it at least plays a part in preventing them from seeing who Jesus truly is. The last kind of blinder to the resurrection, if you will, that we see in this text is ignorance. If you look verse 26 through 27, okay, Jesus puts on his Sunday school teacher hat. He gives these young whippersnappers a Bible lesson. He says, wasn't it necessary? Didn't it have to happen for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. As I said earlier, these disciples, they they had all the resources. But had only gotten some of the facts. Jesus tells them, you you missed one of the most important parts. The Messiah had to suffer to enter into his glory. The disciples, they they just kind of glossed over the whole suffering part in Scripture. They were looking for Christ's glory without the suffering. To put it differently, they, they wanted the king, they wanted their king... Without the cross. We see that in verse 25, right? Jesus says to them, How slow are you to believe all that the prophets have spoken? To put it differently, they were ignorant of the, the entire counsel of Scripture. They somehow had missed parts of Scripture that talked about the fact that glory came through suffering. <clears throat> Now just as these two disciples who, who had the literal resurrected Jesus standing before them, just as they experienced these blinders, we too can experience blinders to seeing the resurrected Jesus for who He is. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with disappointment, Because what God is doing in your life is not aligning with what you were expecting, you're disappointed. God has let you down. That disappointment, it's getting in the way of you seeing the resurrected Jesus right in front of you. The uh, old pa- uh, Presbyterian pastor Stephen J. Cole, uh, preaching on this text, he says, if your expectations are wrong, you can even be disappointed by God. It's not that God was somehow lacking, right? He is far more glorious and perfect than we could ever conceive, but often because of our limited perspective, we feel as if he let us down. Now, it's not to say that we're not allowed to be disappointed with God, right? We see lots of examples, especially in the Psalms, of David lamenting or or crying out to God, essentially saying, this is not what I expected, it's not to say that we can't be disappointed with God, but often our disappointment is what blinds us to seeing God's goodness and His beauty. Perhaps you're you're struggling today with unbelief. You know, maybe maybe you have all the resources about Jesus at your hands. You you've got the facts, but you're you're slow to believe. You're you're stuck in the research favor phase, right? It's like you've been looking to buy a flat screen TV for like eight months, and you just can't pull the trigger because more reviews come out, right? It's like you are stuck. You have all the resources you need. But it's actually blinding you to step out in faith to seeing the resurrected Christ. Maybe you're struggling with, with ignorance. Maybe you you think you have all the answers, all the facts about Jesus, but either because of your story or your upbringing or your, your theological tradition you grew up in, you're actually blind to seeing that you've crafted Jesus into your own making. You can't see the resurrected Jesus for who he truly is. If you find yourself in one of those places, the the beauty of this passage is that as we continue to see the the disciples walking along the Emmaus Road, we, we, in a sense, we see a way out. We see the disciples experience the resurrected Jesus through means of grace, or, to put it differently, gifts that God has given us to help us see him rightly, and pursue Him fully. So what are these means of grace, these, these gifts that God gives us to open our eyes, to, to slowly peel back the blinders and to help us see the resurrected Jesus for who He is? There's three main means of grace that I think we see these two disciples um, step into on their journey on the Emmaus Road. The first one we see is, is walking with God's people. Right, verse 13, again it says, Now that same day, Two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, (laughs) emphasis on together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. These men had been through an extremely crazy (laughs) and deeply grievous week. The guy that they had literally laid everything down for told their parents, like, to heck with you, we're following this guy, left their jobs, probably their money, probably any type of, like, social uh, cachet they had, right? They left all those things to follow this man, and then they watched him experience a shameful, gruesome death on a cross, That's what they've gone through, right? It's like, we're we're coming in here, we're like, well, they probably had a couple donuts in the morning. It's like, no, like, you see what they've been through. Most of us, we we probably would have gone to our rooms, shut the door, turned on like a rom-com, and like ate our sorrows in a gallon of Chunky Monkey or something like that, right? These guys, though, what do they do? (laughs) What do they do? They set out on a journey home together, They take their long, slow, sad walk side by side, not alone. Friends, the the Christian faith, it's often referred to as a journey or a walk or a path, right? We see this all throughout Scripture, especially in the wisdom literature. And I think one of the beautiful things that I love about the Emmaus Road account is that it kind of gives us a literal picture of what it looks like for our journey, our, our faith walk, as it's often metaphorized, right? Cleopas and, and the other disciple, they're walking along together on their journey. On their journey. They're, they're wrestling with the truths of God, trying to map, wrap their mind around what they had experienced. They were, they were tackling these questions, tossing it back and forth, as it says in the original language with each other, about who Jesus was, what the scriptures actually said. And then what does that mean for us now, they're asking, like, what do we do with this now? To, to each disciple, the other disciple was a means of grace. Do you see that? To each disciple, the other disciple was a means of grace. To the unnamed disciple, Cleopas was a means of grace. To Cleopas, his, his journeyman, his, his fellow surgeoner was a means of grace to him. A gift of God to, to help each of them see God rightly and pursue him fully. The old British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he, he preached on this text. It's amazing. He says, Christian people, commune together, but let your communications always be like these disciples, which are recorded in this chapter. Speak of him, talk of him, what you know of him, of your sorrows about him, even of your neglects of him or your ill treatment of him your sins against him. Talk of these things one to the other for so long as they are about him, it will be good even to confess your faults to one another. For it will lead you to pray for one another and to join your prayers together so that there will be greater strength in the petitions. For if two of you are agreed, you know what power that sweet agreement has with heaven. And then citing Malachi 3, Charles Spurgeon says, they that feared the Lord Spoke often to one another. Another great saint of the church, the, the North African pastor and theologian, St. Augustus, he, he wrote this in his rule of life or, or his way of being in the world. He says, whenever you go out, walk together. And when you reach your destination, stay together. Augustine is saying on the, on the Christian road, you should often be together. When you go out, be together. When you get there, stay together. Spurgeon, again, he's adding that you should talk about Jesus on the journey, your joys of experiencing him, but then also your sins against him. That's what Spurgeon says. When you're you're blinders, they're they're crowding out your view of the resurrected Christ. Fellow sojourners, fellow travelers are a means of grace for helping you to see Jesus rightly and pursue Him fully. Another means of grace that we see in this text that the the Emmaus Road disciples engage in is receiving from God's Word. If you look at verse 25 to 27 with me, this is is fascinating, right? Jesus could have easily just kind of stopped the, the story at the start, right? He could have shown up did the Thomas thing, like, check me out, right? But he doesn't for a specific purpose, a specific reason. He, he takes the time to walk his disciples through Scripture. Verse 25, he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, how foolish you are, how slow to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Now friends, in this alone, we see an extremely important truth. That we must know and receive from all of Scripture to see all of Jesus. We must know and receive from all of Scripture to know and experience all of Jesus. When it says from Moses to the prophets in that verse, like that's the the ancient Jewish way of saying cover to cover. Now, mind you, there's no New Testament. So Jesus is walking them cover to cover through what we now refer to as the Old Testament. He's saying that all of this points to me. There's an encouragement for us here to know and receive from God's Word. Full stop. (laughs) That's the encouragement. If we want to see rightly the triune God, we we have to at least engage with Scripture. Now, I say this every single time I talk about engagement with Scripture. The easiest, most common way is to read a Bible, right? But I think the average American last year read like one book, right? Or maybe half. That's like 50% of Americans read a book. Right? So people don't, if you don't like to read, that's cool, right? God's word was spoken for thousands of years. <laughs> okay? It was a, an oral book, if you will, for a long time. So if you hate to read, like there is an abundance of resources, but you have to engage with Scripture. Right? You have to engage with it. It's also an encouragement for us, verse 25 to 27, to, to know and read all of Scripture. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was well-known for, for uh, not liking parts of Scripture and then cutting them out and making, you know, kind of like scrapbooking his own Bible, right? Many of us, though, we don't literally do that. We figuratively do that, right? Some of you, maybe you're, you're here, you know, you're still trying to recover from February, <laughs> the wilderness of Leviticus. You're like, oh my gosh, is this what Scripture is? Yes, it is. It is, but friends, the Old Testament it, it is crucial. Hear me; it's crucial for us to understand and see Jesus fully. If you think about like knowing a friend, right? If if you only know your friend from like your twenty one of their life forward, you're you're like you don't understand kind of some of the the quirks or the ticks. Like what happened to zero through twenty one that influenced who you are today? Right? We have to understand the Old Testament to fully understand Christ. Now, these two disciples, right, they, they had been through a, a lot. <laughs> They've gotten to the end of a seven-mile journey, which included arguing with each other, Jesus like, telling them they're fools, like a, really a stranger to them, telling them they're fools, then getting schooled by this stranger who called them a fool. They're getting schooled in their own Hebrew scriptures. But we still see them engage with what I would argue is, is maybe the most important means of grace, and that's inviting God's presence into our lives. If you look at verse 28 through 32 with me, they came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going on further. This is likely, you know, just kind of a convention of the day. It's not like Jesus is, like, deceptive and he's sinning. You're like, ooh, gotcha, like, okay, sinlessness. It's like, no, he's still sinless, right? It's a cultural norm. It's like if you invite me to your house and you, like, say, oh, you must stay for dinner, you know, we have to do back and forth. You're like, well, no, I really can't, you know, like, that's actually the good social etiquette, you know. Uh, it's like Jesus just just living out social etiquette, right? Uh, he went to what's it? Um, what's oh man? What's the cotillion? That's what I was trying to think of. He went to cotillion. Y'all don't know about that. That's deep South stuff, but y'all y'all can Google it afterwards. <coughs> Anyways, so these disciples here, okay? Um, they they invite Jesus in verse twenty nine. They urged him even, right? Stay with us because it's almost evening. And now the day's almost over, so he, he, Jesus went in to stay with them. And then verse 30, right? Do You see, it's the, invite, the invitation of God's presence that opens us up to seeing and experiencing Jesus. Verse 30, it was as he reclined at the table. If they didn't invite him in, this wouldn't have happened. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So these disciples here, they invite Jesus to stay with him, to to stay with them, to be present with them. And it is it's in their hospitality, in their opening themselves up to God's presence, that they then see Jesus for who he truly is, their resurrected King. Now, friends, one of one of the tensions of, of, of the means of grace is that they're not like kind of levers that you can pull that work every time. Right, you, we, we cannot coerce the God of the universe to act or do what we want Him to do. The means of grace are, are really ways of, of like bumping ourselves into God, trying to run into Him if we can. This is, this is my, uh, my second year of, of vegetable gardening. Um, yeah, no shout-outs there. Yeah, thanks, gosh, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks. Forced applause is the best applause. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, Anyways, my gardening consultant, Tyler Given, shout out, bro, always gets a gardening shout out. He told me gardening is simple, right? Plants need water, they need sun, and then they'll do the rest, right? Right? That's his dumbed-down version. It's way more complicated than that, right? But for me, it's like, this is all you can handle, Nick. Here's the simplest stuff, right? <laughs> so last year, uh, my, 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 uh, my raised bed was in my backyard. It's in, um, like, partial sun, you know. Um, for those who don't know, that's, like, under six hours of sunlight, okay? That's a thing, apparently. But I really wanted to do some others, other plants, right? I, I wanted peppers. I wanted better cucumber yield harvest, if you will. I wanted to do tomatoes and strawberries. And they need full sun. Okay, so dug out like a little side strip on the side of my house that like the summer sun tracks perfectly. It's amazing. Gets probably six to eight hours, right as rain. Okay, so I moved the full sun plants to the front. Okay, why did I do that? That's, that's the, the best opportunity for them to get full sun, right? Now, here's a crazy thing. I don't know if you guys know this, but I actually don't control the sun. Did you know that? <laughs> Sometimes I like to think I do, but I don't control the sun. So God forbid, I, like I could put my, my plants, the full sun plants on the side of my house in the best spot to get full sun, and it could, and it's not going to, but it could rain for 100 days straight, right? They could get no sun, even if I put them in the right spot. Now, when we think about and talk about the means of grace, we are much like plants, right? We we, we simply try to put ourselves in the best place to receive, if I can go say it this way, the sun, S-O-N, come on now with me, (laughs) right? No, too much? Too hokey? All right, all right, cool, that's all right. Anyways, we put ourselves in the best spots through the means of grace to receive God's grace. But this does not mean that we are coercing God to act. This does not mean that we can guarantee, though he will always show up for us at the right time, he may not show up for us in our expectations that we expect of him or on the timing that we expect of him. But we still, means of grace, we need to put ourselves in places that we can bump into him. authors Frank Gablin and Don Carson, and this is why this is so important. They write this about our passage today. They say, God is the revealer of the risen Christ. Let me say that one more time. God is the revealer of the risen Christ. Friends, we must remember that God is ultimately the one that reveals himself to us. And he always does so at the right time in the right way. But like the the, the disciples on the the Emmaus Road, friends, the, the way for us to remove the blinders that often we just kind of put up on our own eyeballs to see Jesus for who he truly is is through means of grace. Again, we're not coercing God into revealing himself to us, but we want to strive through the means of grace to open ourselves up to him as best as we can. The invitation for those Christ followers who are here is is to do just these things, to enter into these means of grace, ways of, of opening ourselves up to Christ. We need to walk with God's people. We need to receive from God's word. And constantly, we need to invite God's presence to be hospitable, in a sense, to the one who is hospitable to us. Now, if you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, you, you have not committed yourself to the way of Jesus, the, the thing, again, that we've seen week after week in this sermon series is you have to answer the question, like, what, what do you do about the resurrection? Everything hinges on that. right? The, the plain facts, like plain historical facts, even staunch atheists, they're like, these are facts, right? <laughs> Jesus was a guy. He was a historic man. He did amazing things, whether or not he did miracles, you know, you can debate that, but he did some amazing things. He was an amazing teacher. He started a movement that transcends culture and time. He died on a cross. <laughs> those, those, those things, <laughs> they're, they're categorically undeniable. Like, you, you cannot say, no, those aren't true. So again, you have to answer the question, what do you do with the resurrection? If the resurrection is what changes hearts and minds, you have to deal with that question. If you're wrestling with all the other stuff, you're, you're not dealing with the root of the issue. Now, what I think is beautiful, again, if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, I would actually encourage you to pursue this question with the same means of grace. If, if you're not sure what to do with the resurrection, if you're exploring that truth, then like these disciples, you, you need to do that with others. Specifically, probably those who have wrestled with the question before. If you're here today and, and you're exploring like the truth, the veracity of the resurrection, then like the, the disciples, you would do well to receive from God's Word. Like, go to the sources, right? You don't need to read Richard Dawkins' take on it. like go to the sources. you wrestle it with yourself. If you're exploring the, the, the truth of the resurrection, this is a scary one, but invite God's presence into your life. Tell him to show up as who he says he is, right? You might find yourself crying out with the disciples then. Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the Scriptures to us? The disciples were saying, like, how did we not know? Like, we felt something when he was talking to us about the law and the Psalms and the prophets. Like, we felt something. How do we not know? If you're exploring this question of the resurrection, there's some longing in there. (laughs) There's something stirring within you. So I hope and pray that maybe you could be like the disciples and ask the question, Man, wasn't my heart burning all this time? I should have known it was Jesus this whole time. Now, it can't be lost on us that there's there's one means of grace that we take part in each week that looks eerily similar to the meal that these disciples had with Jesus, right? Verse 30, again, says, that it was as Jesus reclined at the table with the disciples that he took the bread blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were open. Hold on on your communion cups there, okay? We ain't got nowhere to go. Just a kickball game, but chill, okay? Look, I, I, just, I just want you to read this, okay? Uh, here's a, a word from Charles Spurgeon again for the broken, <laughs> the weary, <laughs> those who maybe you are coming to the table a little battered and bruised. Charles Spurgeon again writing on, on this means of grace that we call communion, he says, now it's a strong temptation of Satan with children of God to tempt them to stay away from the means of grace. Right? Satan says, No, you don't need other people, like just watch Netflix, eat chunky monkey, right? You don't need to read scripture, like keep up with, with fifteen hours of tweets, right? Hey, hey, you don't need to invite God's presence in, like, he doesn't want to do anything with you, anyways, right? Satan tries to keep God's people from the means of grace. Spurgeon says, because they are full of sorrow. But, oh, children of God, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is. As it says in Hebrews, do not be tempted to stay from the place where God has met you and made the place of his feet glorious. Join still with the Lord's people, and if your faith trembles, if you're weak and frail, yet nevertheless come humbly to the table. Christ is not a table for those without doubts. He doesn't have a table with those who are certain about everything, is what he's saying, else you might not come. He's not made it a table for those without sin, else you might not come. But he bids all his disciples come, you among them. Friends, the the weekly meal that we take in is not some rote practice, right? It is revelatory, right? Just as on the Emmaus Road, just as he broke the bread and then they saw the risen Christ, that's what we do. When we take communion together, we are gathering together and we see again every Sunday the risen Christ. It's a revelatory meal that we take together as a family. Okay, now, if you are a follower of Christ, and you want to partake in this meal with us called communion, there are individual servings in the pew backs in front of you. If you're not a Christian, you're here today, and you're like, yeah, I don't know what to do with the resurrection. If you're asking yourself that question, I would ask that you not partake in this meal, not because we want to exclude you, but because this is a meal for those who are about the reality of Christ, and Him crucified, and resurrected, and raised. If you want to talk about what that means, what it looks like to pursue these means of grace. I'd be happy to talk with you, or Pastor James, or Pastor Norm, or any of our our ministry leaders. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to, to place your hope and faith in Christ. Friends, as Jesus was eating with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, and broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said to them, take and eat, This is my body. Let's take and eat this bread together. Same night, Jesus took a cup of wine, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink this cup together. Friends, the Apostle Paul, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that um, through these means of grace, you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you don't push us off, cast us off, figure things out on our own, but you recline with us at the table. You then become the host for us in, in, a, in a crazy way when we invite you in. Jesus, we do thank you that you are our resurrected King. Our whole faith hinges upon it, so we, we thank you, God, that you, um, that all, all of God's promises are yes and amen in you pray all this in your name, Jesus. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church, Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the South End of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons info about our church and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless